0: Hi, Steve Cooper, Rank Success, and this is an intro to my next podcast, uh, which is an interview with Chief Constable Chris Noble of Staffordshire Police, and I wanted to talk to him and ask him some questions on behalf of promotion candidates, and I think there's something for everybody in this blog, so if you're going from constable to sergeant, sergeant to inspector, inspector to chief inspector, and chief inspector to superintendent, there's some tips, some insights. And something for you to kind of sit back and reflect on and perhaps pick up from what Chris Noble shares with you. I asked him questions around what's the best advice that he can uh, offer um, listeners who aspire to promotion in the police service now. We went through the main qualifications for requirement for sergeant and inspector. Um, We talked about values, so we cover values and why there are bespoke values uh, in Staffordshire that the staff have agreed with him. Uh, and we also talk about the topic of PDR's personal development reviews. Uh, I put forward the fact that they're a controversial topic in policing and we discussed that uh, and how they've introduced a new PDR scheme or are introducing a new PDR scheme in um, Staffordshire. And then I asked him about um, you know if you are a ambitious chief inspector looking to develop yourself as superintendent. You know, what does he, as the Chief Constable, expect to see in those individuals? Uh, and what's the main kind of CPD guidance that he could offer? Um, we then also talk about the uplift in Staffordshire and balancing quantity versus quality, and we talk touch on degrees. And uh, we also talk about his role as the uh, protest lead for National Police Chiefs Council, Uh, and we finish with a personal question so i hope you find it enjoyable there's quite a lot of ground we cover in this short period of time and so if you want to sit back relax with a cup of coffee or you're walking your dog out and about uh, perhaps you can have a listen uh, reflect on it and see where it helps you for your promotion aspirations i hope you enjoy it and uh, it'll be playing shortly hi steve cooper and welcome to another rank success podcast and my guest today is the chief constable of staffordshire police uh, uh chris noble good morning chris good morning and thank you very much for making some time available on your busy schedule today to talk about uh, some questions that i think some listeners will will have and uh, it's not very often that people get a chance to listen to chief constables in this perspective in a podcast perhaps while they're walking the dog on the beach or the kids to bed or um doing something else in their life where they're perhaps relaxed enough to take on board information so i appreciate you making that time available i've got some questions and i'd like to start if i may with one that will be at the heart of uh, promotion candidates particularly who's the primary audience for this um could you tell me what's the best advice that you can offer listeners who aspire to promotion in the police service now
1: mm. okay okay um I think, I think the big one, because we're all different, we're all individuals, is you've got to be really clear as to why you want it in the first place. Um, what's your motivations? Um, do you know the job you're going to be stepping into? Have you done your due diligence about what it's going to mean? Because it is a different step up, whether it be the first step to sergeant, the step on, pass that to inspector, or, or on the chief inspector. Uh, it'll have a consequence for you. Generally speaking, you're going to have less time, you're probably going to have more pressure probably more frustration so even just on that sort of personal level and speaking to your loved ones about understanding what it might mean and the shifts that it would have I think that's probably the big one for me about do your homework around it understand what you're stepping into and don't be attracted by the people whizzing past you in the fast lane in the motorway make your own choice make your own decisions Mm -hmm. I think once you've got to that place um, I I think just open your eyes and have a look around to what is good look like you know what is a good sergeant what are the component parts of that? What's a good inspector, et cetera, et cetera? Because then I think you can start to get a sense in your own head, maybe about where you see the gaps that maybe you need to close or fill, the balance between someone who's got good technical skills and someone who's inspirational, someone who cares for their staff. So you you probably want to have an idea, or I do anyway, in, in my head about what good look like, mm-hmm. as opposed to the classic line about, well, I'm definitely not going to be as bad as them, so I might as well go for promotion. Mm-hmm. So maybe a slightly more positive way of, of looking at someone who actually you rate as a really good supervisor or leader and then thinking about actually how you might want to adapt your own approach. Um, I think the next element, which obviously comes to the core of, 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 of your sort of role, is have a really clear plan, you know, if it's important to you, um, if it's going to mean a change in, in your life and your commitments and the time you have available, then you need to, you know, give it the attention it needs around having a plan about your approach. Um, and that for me isn't just about the technicalities of preparing for a process and knowing the CVF inside out, having your backward looking questions ready, thinking about the, the joys of forward looking questions etc uh, etc et it's, it's about plan for the process and you know work it through so you give it the best shot but you've got to plan for success as well so whenever you're in that first day as a, as a sergeant or an inspector or chief inspector you need to be prepared to be successful so your plan isn't just about the technicalities of the process. What's your 100 days gonna look like um, as a sergeant? I've got two ACCs who you know, have have started next door with me in the last week. Um, and one of their interview questions was, chat me through your 90 day plan in terms of how you're gonna be an engaged and visible leader um, and, and give time to your staff but grip your portfolio. Mm-hmm. So. That would be my advice for people, have, have, uh, have a plan. Um, and then I suppose the other thing is, psychologically start thinking like the rank that you're going for. So start thinking like a surgeon, immerse yourself, uh, what would you do, how would you address that, et cetera, et cetera. And just so actually psychologically you're already in that space, and what you're going for isn't something to be grasped because you've got a confidence, you could do the job, you've got a plan, you know what good looks like. And you've got the confidence from you know all the other parts of your life that in many ways are so much more important than work mm. that this is something you can absorb and cope with you don't want to stumble into
0: promotion by accident mm. okay thanks very much for that some great insights there um so what do you see as the main requirement for a qualified sergeant then so someone who's through the the exam who's listening mm. in now and aiming to make the jump to to the more strategic rank of inspector
1: Again, probably come back to what I said a minute ago, but just understanding the difference between the role of a a sergeant and an inspector. You know, the first line supervisor role is really challenging, but it's relatively well-defined. You've got your team, you've got those one-to-one relationships, you've got a a relatively defined sort of span of command and responsibility. Very often inspectors, albeit it can be role-specific, will have a bigger span of command. Um, You know, the expectation for me of, of my inspectors is that they will um, get much more involved in seeing the risk beyond their immediate team so they'll be looking across the whole organization. They, they will clearly have an expectation from my point of view as sort of middle managers about whilst you're not quite the bosses um, you know whenever I was growing up inspectors most definitely were the bosses because they had a job of it, not just knowing the strategy mm-hmm. but how it was going to be realized on the ground so you know they were two or three um, sort of ranks from, from, from a deity, I think, whenever I was going through policing mm-hmm. um, and my expectation of inspectors is that they will inspect, that they should know what's going on, they get into the detail, but they're inspecting on my behalf, so I'm expecting them to understand you know, what's, where do we want to be um, as a police force in Staffordshire, what are the values that are really important to us, that define us in terms of who we are. Um, and that their job is, is not just to look at the detail of what's on the ground in front of them but to lift their heads, to think about where we're going, where we want to be uh, and what's their role around driving improvement, standards, the culture that sits around their teams as well and then how they work with their counterparts. So if you're a CID, DI, I'm expecting you would have a really clear understanding about within your geographic area because we've moved back to that model now. Mm-hmm. What a quality investigations look like, what a handovers look like, What's pursuit of suspects look like? What does proactivity look like? So not just within the CID teams, thinking about how they can influence colleagues in response uh, and neighborhood policing as well. So it's a big step up. Again, clearly if you've been a sergeant with any degree of experience, you'll have a, a sense again about what does a good inspector look like and what does a bad inspector look like? I'm um, making sure from your point of view that you're ready for that jump because there's another level of expectation, at least for me anyway. When someone gets to the rank of inspector about that professional maturity um, and the ability to both see the big picture um, as well as inspect the small picture in terms of what we're delivering for
0: victims every single day mm-hmm. okay um, thanks so much and as a, as a chief constable what are your expectations of leaders so we're talking about the different levels what are your expectations of leaders
1: yeah it, it, it's an interesting question because i'm actually just out of a meeting with colleagues because um, we we had our um, HMIC FRS Peel Inspection land at the end of last summer um, uh, and there's a recommendation in there uh, that I've sort of taken personal ownership around leadership. Now HMIC's language they talk about visible leadership and staff feeling connected to leaders. I, I don't really like the concept of visibility I think it's a bit crass and a, and a, and a little bit um, of a veneer sometimes. You know, the, the, the language I talk about in Staffordshire in terms of setting my expectations is, is about engaged leadership because for me, uh, and there's three elements to it that'll sort of step you through, uh, all, all leaders now know how to game visible leadership. You, know, you rock up on New Year's Eve, you turn up at a football briefing whenever you've got a captive audience. You maybe do the odd shift handover, maybe once or twice a year, you maybe go out in the back of the car for a couple of hours. And on their own, it's not that they're not valuable, but if all you're doing is ticking a box um, or announcing well in advance that you're gonna be coming to the station for the day, well, you know, everything smells of fresh paint. The resourcing levels are probably the best they've ever been in the last year for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone who would probably speak truth to power is probably already out in the vehicle dealing with the first emergency call, so you'll never even get to hear them or see them. So. Yeah. What I say to my team is, I want it more about um, presence as opposed to visibility. They're busy people, leaders in policing. But go and base yourself in a local station. Do your work there. Do your meetings, because the conversations you will pick up in the margins as a leader about what is really going on, what are the bugbears, what are the what are, you know, I sort of call them the frictional wellbeing issues. You know, the computer system, the lack of cars, rubbish estate, poor IT you know you very rarely get to hear about those as a senior leader in particular mm. unless you're down ask, talking to staff and observing how all those sort of elements of policing are working day to day so that's the first thing that I say to staff wanting to be a leader at any level you've got to be present with your staff you've got to listen to what's going on. second one then is and, and this is one that you know Lee Freeman talks about a lot within the Humberside perspective about support and challenge because um, clearly you know, I, I want my leaders to, to care for their staff, that's pretty fundamental. Mm-hmm. But if all we do is support staff um, and you know, hugs every day, lemon drizzle cake every lunchtime, you breed dependency mm-hmm. um, and it ends up becoming a bit of a parent-child relationship and actually I don't think staff want that, I think they want the flip side of that pendulum which is about challenge. You know, e- everyone works best I think under a healthy amount of stress and agitation and stretch. So for me, you know, good leaders strike that balance between support and challenge. Mm-hmm. And it could be different, you know, you could come into my team today, and actually there's something going on, and I can pick it up very, very quickly. And you need a bit of support, you need a bit of flexibility, you maybe need way early on a shift. Um, but actually, in, in a month's time, you know, there could be a pattern set around maybe your paperwork, keeping victims updated, maybe even how you're treating your colleagues, it's gonna need me to actually formally, you know, challenge you not Mm -hmm. in terms of the bureaucracy of of challenge processes but more just about saying Steve need a conversation noticed a few things this is what I'm expecting this is what I'm looking for Uh, and chatting that through it's the classic Osprey I suppose isn't it in terms of what we did in the past about balancing you know performance discipline and welfare and as a supervisor having all those elements in your head with your team as you go Uh, and then the third element is about doing the detail Um, I, I do not like presidential leadership especially among senior leaders Um, and whilst I don't want people micromanaging or sitting on other people's shoulders or people not feeling trusted I think the importance of what leaders do in policing and the victims that we deal with um, the risks that our staff face it needs leaders who do detail Mm. who understand what it looks like you know who know how to operate niche uh, who know the challenges around kit and equipment you know, who knows what a custody environment looks like as well, so um, those are the component parts for me about what my expectations are of leaders and my sort of overall phrase that I use, not that I've trademarked it, is about engaged leadership, you know, leadership that's really engaged with its staff, Mm -hmm. right level of support and challenge, does the detail, and that there's a a credibility and and a respect from staff towards leaders, um, even though you're not everybody's friend.
0: I do. Well, thanks so much. I mean, there's some real good points there which I'm sure people can replay and listen to that will resonate uh, with them, uh, particularly if they aspire to a leadership role. Um, so one of the other things, Chris, I wanted to move on to is um, the CVF, the Competency and Values Framework, and it's the College of Policing's framework for assessing and, and, and recruiting people for selection processes in policing. And uh, something that I've noticed forces is doing uh, is they are adapting the... CVF if you like in terms of the values so I notice here in Staffordshire you've done that so what made you diverge from the standardized version uh, of the values set out to the bespoke values that you have here of caring collaborative and accountable
1: yeah no that's a good question um and and for for clarity whenever we are running promotion processes you know clearly the code of ethics CVF they're absolutely there front and center so you know we don't we haven't introduced anything that would in any way compete from the College of Policing. But um, uh, f- for me, the values that we talk about, about, about caring, um, about being collaborative and being accountable, they all came from the staff themselves. So uh, whenever I arrived, one of the first things that I and the team did was move back to a very local model of policing. Staff were crying out for it. They were actually telling us they wanted change. They were telling us how, how it was going to be done and what it, be, what it wanted to look like. Uh, and there was a there was an excellent sort of change team pulled from practitioners in Staffordshire who were who were moving us from a, a directorate model to a local policing model. And as part of that, in the in the spring of last year, we sort of sat down with the workforce and said, right, we're changing our model of policing, but here's a really good opportunity to think about what do we want as our vision for Staffordshire police in terms of where do we want to be, what do we want to be defined by. And then what are the values that are bespoke to us? You know, not generic, not off the shelf, not things that would apply to West Midlands or PSNI or Humberside, but really bespoke to Staffordshire as a police force. It's history, what it holds proud, defined by the community in which, you know, the vast majority of us live and work. And and these were the words that they came up with. So the idea of caring, what they were saying to me and other senior leaders was, absolutely, you know, we care about victims. They're our core focus but we also want an organisation that cares about us in a really practical way. So that concept of caring, um, family was another word that was sort of wrapped up in that, was pretty strong from the staff themselves. And then the second word collaborative, again there was a lot of words like sort of team, whole force, network, you know not wanting to work in silos. There was a real theme about wanting to be collaborative as an organisation and not just about working with partners because we've got a very strong relationship with fire in particular. Um, but also internally, there was just a view that over the years a, a lot of brick walls had been built within the police family, that response and neighbourhood didn't really work together and know what each other was doing. They weren't even based in the same stations. CID was even more remote again. So that local model where we went back to sort of 10 local areas, put response and neighbourhood back together. So the whole idea of collaboration, teamwork, just feeling connected again was, was pretty strong. The third one, which is the strange one for me, because I've never really come across it before, was staff were saying they wanted to be held to account. Um, I think there was probably a bit of frustration that they maybe didn't know who was responsible for what. They didn't feel overly proud in the service they were delivering, so they were asking to be held to account, which I think is pretty healthy, actually, Mm -hmm. in policing. And the flip side of the coin was, but give us the tools to do the job. Give us the people, the skills, the technology, etc., etc., Uh, I'm not holding me to ransom to say, right, if we don't get those, we're not going to be held to account, but saying, look, that will give us the best chance to be able to deliver a really meaningful service. So th- those values, which we do quite deliberately ask about within the promotion process, are all words, phrases, concepts, which came from staff. And we spoke to probably about thirteen, maybe 1,500 staff, uh, and those three values were really, really strong in terms of how Staffordshire Police, Staffordshire staff, um, saw what was defining about Staffordshire as a as a personality as a police force.
0: Okay thank you very much and uh, that clearly explains the background to why that's slightly different and I do see it in other forces as well and one of the forces has got kindness yes as, as a value so uh, it's interesting to see how that comes about and that there is a, a process and a consultation behind that with staff and they've been part of contributing to it. Um, one of the things I, I wanted to talk to you about Chris was PDRs, um, personal development reviews in policing. Um, They're a controversial topic in policing for some reason. Um, So why do you think that is, and what are your views, and how else should personal performance be meaningfully assessed?
1: Mm. So whenever I first took up post, um, we didn't have PDRs, and it's taken us a while consulting staff, working through best practice to just have launched our PDR in the last couple of weeks. Um, and it's interesting, because like you, I've probably never ever, in all the various versions of PDRs I work with, ever had staff who punch the air every time it's sort of PDR day in terms of completion. And there's always this rush to complete at the very, very last minute, and then threatening emails being sent out by bosses to do them, so I again, I was a little bit bemused by the fact that staff were saying, we don't have a PDR and we want one because I think it links back to the accountability um, value that we just talked about, that there was an appetite to be held to account, to have that moment in time, in particular on a monthly basis, where actually you sit down with your supervisor and you have a conversation about what's your contribution to policing and the team at the minute, Um, any welfare concerns, what's your contact, what's your issues, anything you want to make me aware of, anything I can help with? And then the third strand of that is around development. You know, do they want to go for promotion? Are they looking at a lateral move? Is there a skills gap? You know, do they want to do a driving course? So, you know, what we're putting in place, um, I hope, will address some of the reasons why I think you know PDRs keep tripping over their own feet. Um, mm. So, what we've tried to say is right. Reason number one is normally the bureaucracy or the IT just makes it cumbersome. So let's keep it really, really simple. You know, there'll be. A professional conversation once a month for about sort 20-25 of minutes, We cover those three areas. What's your contribution, how are you as a person, and what do you want to do in terms of development? Um, and stick it in your Outlook Calendar, we're not asking for a plethora of notes unless you think there's something that needs to be made. Um, and then there'll be the sort of more standard April conversation, which is a bit more structured and there's a, there's a SharePoint opportunity for people to put in what are the objectives or, and what was their contribution last year and then after six months, we'll check in in terms of how that's going. So for me, keep it really simple around the bureaucracy, really simple three-point agenda to the conversation itself. Uh, And then using the sort of traditional nine-box grid, start to identify talent um, Mm -hmm. and hold people who aren't performing to account, because that's a a big issue around morale and teams, quite frankly, Mm -hmm. Um, and then where people are contributing um, both above and beyond and to a strong level well how do we push them on, how do we recognise that um, and actually you know, we've got the ability to sort of meaningfully and, and, and legally discriminate in terms of performance because we've now got a process to do that. So for me, I I, I I think it's really valuable as a process. It's a bit of a building block around that sort of monthly calendar conversation between line manager and staff member. Um, and as we talked briefly and in, in, uh, just prior to the sort of turning the tape on, um, I can't make the assumption anymore that supervisors know what good looks like around these types of conversations. Mm. So actually given a structure, given a process, given a set of expectations, meaningfully checking how that's going, um, I think is really important today when you've got very young in-service um, sergeants and clearly, you know, I was a young in-service sergeant but I was, had a lot of support from other sergeants in the team at the time. Um, and indeed senior constables which you know I'm not sure they exist anymore in policing at least not maybe in in, in response teams. Um, In terms of the other part about sort of how should um, personal performance be meaningful assessed um, I know we've talked about the sort of monthly conversations there's something for me just about those day-to-day conversations for line managers about if you see something deal with it if it's good work recognize it so that sort of constant rolling mm-hmm. conversation with your staff so there's no surprises for them um, and then I think the other element is you know how do we build in victim feedback you know are supervisors actually picking up the phone to victims or if it's done by a team somewhere else are they really engaged about you know not just the statistics of performance how many stop and search or you know how how, how many victim updates have you done what does it feel like for a victim mm-hmm. uh, and I think there's a rule for supervisors about trying to actually be here firsthand from people who've been subject to the service that their staff have been receiving. What did it feel like? How was it? Did you feel reassured? What could we have done better? I just think those are are really powerful conversations to have. And then should be informing that sort of PDR conversation on a weekly basis as well. And then one that we're gonna do with, with my senior team, which I think is valuable, albeit there's a degree of sort of risk around it as well, is that 360 degree feedback? What do other people think about you? If you're a supervisor, you're gonna have a boss, you're gonna have people working to you, you're gonna have peers. Yeah. Uh, the opportunity, I think, just to actually ask an open question um, and then get some feedback, um, which isn't necessarily performance feedback, it's more about just how you as a leader are performing. Yeah. Um, I, I personally find that really powerful.
0: Yeah, and it's also, I mean, the 360 stuff is, uh, people often get hung up on that kind of thing particularly with if you like um, apathetic comments or wounding or throw throw throwaway comments but I think one of the things that gave me some insight on that was someone just said to me 360 yeah it's just a snapshot at that time at that moment from someone's perception it's just a snapshot what do you learn from it what can you learn from it how does it help if it doesn't help put it to one side if it does is it opening up an insight a bit of Know, box, if yeah. You box. And,
1: and it's a tool to be used some, some of the best bosses I've ever worked for including chief constables um, they actively ask for feedback actively ask for feedback uh, after a particular meeting or indeed just at a point of time you know as opposed to just giving it to me they would say well tell me what do you think how did they deal with that or what's your perspective and where things are you know I've got some brilliant sergeants and inspectors who via Twitter or text or, indeed, whenever they see me out and about, um, uh, you know, actually, I just say, tell me tell me what do you think? You know, we wrote that last week or we did a video blog or whatever. How did it land? What do you think? Give me your perspective. Um, so I, I think 360 feedback is a structured way of doing it, but there's something, I think, again, that just sort of breaks through the formality sometimes of ranks and policing where you ask other people for, for feedback and authorise them to give you the truth because you don't always get it as a matter of course.
0: Yeah. Okay, um, so these 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 podcasts and, and the kind of support that, that I put out there um, are for mainly for federated ranks, so those going for Sergeant Inspector and Chief Inspector. So I wanted to just cover the Chief Inspector part for those that are ambitious um, as Chief Inspector. So my question would be, there are ambitious individuals at Chief Inspector rank Looking to develop themselves for superintendent level, what do you expect to see in those individuals, and what's the main CPD guidance you would offer ambitious and motivated chief inspectors? Because there is what I call, or often sometimes allude to, crossing the Rubicon. You're moving from the inspecting ranks into the superintendent, more strategic ranks, and part of your CPD should be um, more around, you know, um, relationship building more about partnership working and more about facilitating which is very different to you know facing inward from down from the chief inspecting ranks so just on that question could you just cover some of that for chief inspectors listening in who want to go for superintendent
1: yeah and, and look, i'll speak for my expectations in 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 staffordshire because um, i i sit on all the the chief inspector processes and above personally because i've got to own those leadership appointments so um, I make a point of even before the processes start, in fact I've actually got one on Thursday for, ins- for the inspector process, you know, g- going in front of people we will probably use teams and say, right, these are my expectations of this rank that you're going for. But this is also what you can expect from the panel in the process, that you're treated like a human being and it's fair uh, and you've got an opportunity, you know, to give your best as opposed to going through the ringer of a, of a process. Um, but whenever we sort of come to that step, you, you're right, albeit, you know, uh, and maybe it's just Staffordshire, maybe it's just forces of this size, which are almost sort of bang in the middle of, of forces, but very often chief inspectors, whether it be SIOs or local policing commanders, are running a really significant chunk of, of my business. You know, I, I moved to sort of a 10 local policing area model and put a chief inspector in charge of each one, because in some ways, and I also want them to think as a team, I want them thinking a little bit like sort of mini chief constables as well. Um, so actually I, I think there's a number of chief inspecting ranks which in lots of ways are already operating at the superintending rank. So there's, there's a bit about that but ir- irrespective of that and for me in terms of the sort of superintendents. I've talked about engaged leadership in terms of even though you're a superintendent you know be very careful what you think the word super actually means um, and actually you've got ever more responsibility again to know what is really going on in your business so by all means you know have strategies on your wall um, but you know within your sort of line of vision you need to be really clear you understand what does culture look like in your team in your in your area What's the detail of the service being provided to victims? What does investigation look like? What are your outcome rates? What are your stop and search levels? So what does reality look like on the ground? So that engaged leadership is probably the really clearest expectation I would have of them. I think for me there's gotta be operational credibility, um, and whether it just be my background from from sort of Northern Ireland, or indeed just what, what I enjoy as a cop. You know, the core disciplines around commanding from a public order, public safety point of view, um, around firearms command, around multi-agency command, around specialist crime disciplines as well. You know I'm expecting my superintendents to have at least probably two if not more of those core command disciplines. Um, and you know maybe they're at the early stages of getting their portfolio at, at silver level and some even have pushed on the gold level as well but that for me is pretty fundamental that they are operationally credible, they can take decisions, they know what risk looks like, they contribute on call to the whole organisation and don't just command within their one particular sort of silo or or business area. Um, So that for me is really important um, because speaking frankly, um, in other organisations I've come across, you've got people who've got to the rank of superintendent who haven't got that exposure to command and critical decision making, and quite frankly are looking to avoid it. Um, And it's superintendent rank for me, call me old fashioned, I think it's pretty basic as a superintendent, you will be at least operating at silver commander level across those core disciplines. Um, and then the third one, uh, as I've just alluded to, is absolutely. I want you to be, you know, appropriately parochial about your business area, your geographic command, whatever it would be. But how do you work as a group of peers at a superintendent level, and indeed involve police staff colleagues at a similar level as well? You know, do you understand the business of policing in terms of money? Uh, in terms of risk, in terms of governance responsibilities, in terms of people responsibilities, partnerships, so you know looking up and out uh, in terms of all the dimensions of policing um, as a business um, as well as just you know the the various thing commands that they may well hold as well. So um, uh, for me superintendents are, are, are pretty critical here but equally as I said at the start There's a significant number of my chief inspectors are running really important teams or bits of geography as well and I think very often those independent command roles, not exclusively but very often are one of the best preparations for someone stepping on, not just to the superintending rank but actually chief officer level as well.
0: Hmm. (coughs) Okay and on on that point I suppose it's still around the the theme of that really, you are the MPC see uh, lead for protest so on that point on the back of that question is there any key messages that you would want to get out on the back of what I just asked you
1: yeah I, and I think I think we've seen probably in the last sort of 18 24 months um, I get a lot of pressure coming on bronze commanders on the ground and maybe not even bronze commanders there's maybe just cops who turn up at a protest could be the M25 could be somewhere else um, and immediately having the glare of the media, who remarkably are there just before us, yeah. um, and then social media. So I think the first thing I would say is, one of my key roles is trying to get as much support and information and briefings and knowledge to the front line as I possibly can to make sure that that job is achievable, because that is a lot of pressure on someone to deal with a protest under the glare of, of, of that level of publicity and spotlight um, I'm making some pretty complex decisions that, let's be honest, barristers and, and judges will maybe take then two weeks in a courtroom to pour over. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the first thing I would say is that, you know, my role and strategic role in protest is important, but actually the role of someone on the ground when it first happens is the most fundable, fundamental element of mm-hmm. policing protest, in my view. Um, and I do think we need to do more, and, and as chiefs, we are aware of this about just how people very very quickly can be put into the public glare um, lots of critique thrown at them for people who are trying to do their job and you know deliver decisions and make decisions in a proportionate way so there's something just about the welfare and the well-being of staff who all of a sudden will have the daily mail or other reputable news outlets focus in on their particular decisions at the time without any regard to context or legal responsibilities um, Yeah, and I suppose the other element for me as well is one I've got to be thoughtful about is is just allowing officers and staff to make good decisions sometimes. There is a lot of pressure from very senior levels in policing Mm. coming down to so-called lower ranks about their decision making and critiquing things and hindsight is a a remarkable gift that only chief officers seem to have at their disposal. Um, And just making sure that we are fair um, and that we um, don't step into blame. Um, because you know on occasions we are exposed at a national level and actually you know some of the chiefs that I have the greatest respect for um, you know very recently have stood up for their staff in a balanced way as well as recognizing that we can do things differently so that that for me is, is as a chief constable really important for me about the right amount of support for my staff whilst recognizing what we do is too important not to keep learning and adjusting and improving so Kraken portfolio love it um, asked to take it on um, really important for me in terms of policing around legitimacy and confidence and trust that we get the balance right in all our decision making around protest but it's a long time since I was a bronze or a silver commander in Belfast but I've got enough scars and memories to recognise that is a really challenging job for some of our most junior um, officers and staff to be taking and they don't have anything like the level of support I have whenever they're making those decisions.
0: Okay, well thank you very much and hopefully some really good insights there for people that are in those roles uh, and to reflect on your your comments and your thoughts uh, from the position that you're leading in. Um, Just switching over now to um, some recent um, reports in the the media that it was reported recently that police uh, are recruiting people who are, as it was phrased, barely literate uh, in the English language. How is your force uplift going and how are you striking that balance between quantity versus quality? on the back of that between policing degrees and the argument yeah. around that and this kind of um, point around barely literate in what do you what are your thoughts on that yeah well
1: um it, it, it's a pretty burning question inside policing as well in, uh, as the media you know i would i would do a lot of workshops with frontline managers whether sergeants or police staff and and very often they'll, they'll get to a point in the conversation where they'll say you know boss what do you think about degree entry As a sort of colloquial term um, and, and I think what I would say is I don't think it's ever been harder to start policing. Um, and you know, we, I, I've got you know real experience um, at, at graduations of seeing people who've come through some of the more current sort of ways of entering policing with an absolute pride about what they've achieved but also a recognition of how hard it's been for them as well. So I have a huge amount of respect for people who are learning their craft on the street um, and then balancing the need around what they need to deliver from sort of a university degree element as well. And I'm just thoughtful about making sure that we don't set people up to fail. All I would say is, uh, in Staffordshire at least, we're not seeing people leaving um, uh, this particular way of entering policing, um, even in the way it was before. So actually the attrition rates, as they're called, are less in this current way of um, introducing people to policing than they were in the previous one. But there's no doubt there's a real pressure and a real impact around it uh, in terms of people trying to juggle and balance professional and and personal life Uh, and we will and need to work even harder with universities just to make sure the balance is struck Mm. Um, in terms of the overall approach I'm a big believer Policing's a profession we should be accredited for what we do there should be proper recognition around that and um, with that comes the accountability we've talked about before and the professionalization of policing but we've got to be fair to people at the very start of their career and my thoughtfulness is, are we packing too much in, too early in the career, and what support do people need to be given, what adjustments can we make, just to make that a, a, a fairer balance for people. But, you know, in terms of standards, um, well, you know, whenever I joined, um, you know, I was accused of coming out of the depot and not having the skills, and they teach the in there, just human rights, was I think probably the phrase, back sort of 25, 26 years ago. So I'm not quite sure when this sweet spot for police training and police recruitment ever actually took place. And of course, many of the the very high profile um, individuals we've seen coming to notice recently in terms of some of the most offensive um, behaviors, you know, are not one, two or three year constables in the job, they've been in for some significant time in a very different regime. So just think we need to be careful about the judgment we apply to new staff coming in to join us, because my experience has been, they're really motivated, they're up for it, they're staying with us and they're committed so I haven't had those issues in Staffordshire that have been reported. We're doing really well in uplift. We're still the fourth lowest um, force in terms of headcount in the country. Um, so I wanna build numbers and we've got, I've got support from my PCC uh, around doing that. But no, I'm, I'm really pleased with the standards of the recruits coming in. But that said, even in the last couple of weeks, we've been really clear, not just with our new recruits, but existing staff. Um, that we are going to have a, a, a really clear refocus again on standards around uniform, vehicles, estate, how people treat their kit, the quality of service we provide to victims, how we treat each other um, just to make it very clear to people again that absolutely whilst there's an element of policing is is about academic and head knowledge um, we're a disciplined organisation and what we do is too important to see our standards slip in our area so. Um, not in any way linked to new people coming into the organisation, it's important for 20-year constables, but um, I just think a really clear refocus on the basics of policing, what standards looks like, how people portray themselves, um, is pretty fundamental for me in terms of sh- someone proving to me that they respect
0: the badge they're wearing. OK, thank you very much. And before I, before I get to the final question, could I just slip in one which is, which is related to what we've been talking to, uh, but it's around the, the, the concept of an interview, in a promotion selection process, and I've asked this to previous um, people to, to, to leave Freeman before, and the range of views on that, particularly from candidates that have been successful, even when they've been successful, there is no holy grail for a promotion selection process. And when I've spoken to other people on podcasts, Simon Foy a, and others, uh, the view has swung from how can you not? to yeah. well there are other ways of doing it and in an ideal world there would be this what are your views on it because it's it's quite wounding when people are in acting or temporary roles in policing they can clearly do the job yeah. um and they can sit in front of communities and explain difficult issues with, the, with the, the, the the kind of pressures of an audience there and yet when they sit down on that interview seat they go to pieces what are your views on that and whether because you mm. clearly wouldn't interview a superintendent without having a, an a, or you clearly wouldn't assess a superintendent without it so what are your thoughts on that? Well, it well it, it's it's a pretty burning issue at the
1: minute um, even around the sort of chief officer selection process because obviously you, your listeners might be aware that there used to be a police national assessment centre PNAC which you know selected who could then go on to the strategic command course and then become chief officers and there were real concerns about not having a a large enough pool of successful candidates to fill the vacancies and not enough diversity within those candidates and therefore policing really had very limited diversity at chief officer level. Um, And and now it's gone down to essentially a a portfolio of evidence being presented um, which will then be assessed by the chief constable in the college to decide if someone can move on to a development course. I know you're talking about the Holy Grail. I think if there was a Holy Grail for me, it would be a workplace-based assessment where the absolute integrity of the person doing the assessment and the absolute competence of that assessment and the veracity of the evidence and the comparability across every candidate was perfect and spot on. So that for me is the Holy Grail because then that would pick up where someone's actually doing the job and we can effectively stand over our decision making. I don't think policing is either sophisticated enough or prepared to put the hard yards in from a bureaucracy point of view around that, albeit I think there is progress being made to try and get us there. Mm. Um, uh, but you know, for, from my perspective, whilst the interview is important, I'm quite clear whenever, I, whenever I'm interviewing or setting up interviews that I want a real balance about not just someone telling me what they've done, because we all know that can be pre-packaged and people just do not listen to the question. Mm. I've been there. Um, but then the forward-looking questions as well, about testing what would someone do or what's their values or you know chat me through your thoughts so on so I'm, I'm a I'm a I'm a big believer in a really good balance in an interview about what have you done and what would you do I think that's quite a good leveler for some mm-hmm. people who maybe haven't had different types of experiences but I also think the skill is in the interviewer it should be a professional conversation where you give someone an ability to talk about who they are what are they about what do they really think what would you do that whenever people get Prompted or probed in an interview, they don't shut down. They see it as an opportunity to change a direction of travel, so mm-hmm. I think part of the issue with interviews in the past is that they've been so rigid and so clinical that people just come in and drop the little boxes of evidence they've developed and walk out the door again, mm-hmm. and that is not a good outcome because you're not getting the best candidates. You're getting candidates who've probably got the best memory recall and can handle their nerves in that environment best on the day. Mm-hmm. And I've got some cracking actors and temporaries, sergeant and inspector and um, uh, indeed going for chief inspector who keeps struggling because of the pressure they put in s- themselves in the process. Mm. I've got a responsibility as a chief to make sure my panels get the best out of people and aren't slaves to the actual process itself.
0: And it's interesting to see the kind of way the pendulum is swinging through that, both in terms of discussion and practical application in selection processes, because we're starting to see those those rear facing, which were the traditional types, mixed with the forward facing. Yeah. And I think at least one force is also experimenting with sprinkling in some strength-based questions where everybody mm-hmm. feels comfortable talking about, you know, what's a good day look like for you. Yeah know and those yeah. kind of ones and and when I wrote a blog about it they said which I had some feedback from people saying really interesting What, what, what strength, which forces are doing strength so it clearly has some resonance in there yes. so I think it's good that the pendulum keeps swinging and hopefully it will settle somewhere near to that holy grail but in the interim you know people are putting themselves forward for processes and it's good to hear that chiefs are caring if you like to, to use your, your value about um, you know the way that is experienced by promotion Yeah well the, the, yeah, I,
1: you know I, I sit down in front of the panels from an accountability point of view and say this is what I expect from you uh, as a chief because whenever people put themselves forward for a promotion process their family life suffers, they put themselves under pressure and stress and it's a key moment for me about where someone can either fall in love with the organisation uh, or fall out of love with it so how you know how staff are treated through the promotion process how they're given feedback, who speaks to them what development opportunities you give them in advance to give them a really good shot at what they're going for um, how you support them afterwards it's probably one of the most significant moments in someone's career around how the organization treats you and make you feel around a promotion process and it's, you know, clearly getting it or not getting it is pretty fundamental mm-hmm. but it's not the whole picture so I, I'm very very clear with my panels that you know I'm gonna be asking staff not just about how fair the process was but how did they feel and what level of support did you get in advancing afterwards. Mm. Um, I've spoken to a lot of candidates who haven't been successful and almost to a man or a woman they've said, look boss, god I didn't get it, frustrated because I've been acting, but the process is really fair and people couldn't have done any more to help me prep and I'm gonna go again. So that, that for me is success as an organization around promotion processes, even if it maybe
0: didn't quite work out for that individual. Mm. Okay. Well, thanks again, and uh, apologies for slipping that one in, but it was uh, it was part of the course that we were talking about. So, um, the last one really, you can take a deep breath. This one's more of a, a personal one. Um, finally, if you could travel back in time uh, and speak to yourself as a young constable, what single piece of career advice would you offer him? Uh,
1: I think I think the biggest bit of advice would be be courageous. You know, be brave. Don't. Don't avoid difficult conversations. Don't avoid asking what you might think is a stupid question. Um, if you've got a colleague who's doing something stupid, you know, have a word. If needs to be, have a word with a supervisor. Um, as a supervisor, don't avoid the difficult conversations with staff who are not delivering, even though you know it might unpack a word of the pain for you in slower times. So just, you know, be courageous. Um, uh, you know, whilst not completely checking your brain out as well, because you, sometimes you've got to pick your battles. But I think that's probably the enduring one. At times in my career, I haven't challenged things. I've walked past things. I've let standards slip over time. I haven't had a hard conversation with a boss or a peer um, because I wanted a bit of an easy life. And I think what again, the job I do, the job you know, many of your listeners will be doing. Um, is so important that we just need to have that courage to do the right thing at the right time and even if it's going to generate work or or pain for us because in the long run i think it actually avoids a lot of pain and work
0: mm-hmm. if
1: we're courageous at the right time and deal with things whenever they should be
0: dealt with okay well thank you very much for that and thanks very much again chris for putting aside us as, uh, uh aside for this for this blog and um, your busy schedule i really appreciate it and i hope the listeners get some Good insights and some good advice to reflect upon. Um, I will be back with another podcast in due course and until then take care and stay safe.